listening over breakfast to the um, chair of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee this morning, talking about the situation in the Middle East and globally, you can't really look at this passage um, without being very, very conscious um, of those opening words. Again, it will be like. What will it be like? Well, if you go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, you'll find that Jesus is starting to talk about the destruction of the temple. And after this passage, he's talking about the sheep and the goats. And that's the context of this passage. Now, Andy is clearly starting to get worried that I'm about to launch into some horrendous apocalyptical sermon. I'm not. I'm going to keep to the title. But I think we have to see it in that context. And, you know, um, it was about 40 years after Jesus probably spoke these words, that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, erased, and has never been rebuilt. Did you know that the Roman generals who did that were two people, father and son, called Vespasian and Titus? Now, Vespasian... Um, was sent down to Judea to sort out the Jews, who were being a bit fractious. Before he'd done that, he was actually proclaimed emperor in 69 AD. His son then took over the campaign, and the following year, uh, the city was burned, the temple was totally destroyed. What I find interesting, you may not, but let me share it with you, um, is that about 15 years after Jesus spoke these words, the same Vespasian was one of the generals who led the invasion, the Roman invasion of Britain, and he probably, archaeologists think, had a camp just south of Wimborne, which he probably supplied through a port round about where Hamworthy is today. Isn't that interesting? That those feet that walk, walk through Dorset, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, were in Jerusalem. But that just tells us the extent to which people traveled. So when you know, people traveled on business, People didn't just travel to conquer. They traveled on business. They even, would you believe, went on tourist trips. So for Jesus to tell a story about someone packing up and going um, is, would not strike them as particularly unusual, those early hearers. Um, the only difference would be that, um, unlike when Eunice and I cleared off to uh, the south of Spain for three months um, when I had some sabbatical leave from my firm. Um, we didn't have the benefits of the internet, the telephone, and the internal combustion engine, 
and a father who could occasionally remember his induction into email teaching, um, we, all they had was their feet, a horse, a carriage, a ship, and if you wanted to communicate, then there, you needed a messenger, or you had to go yourself. And that meant that when you left for what, however long it took, you needed people you could trust. And underlying this is really a story about trust. Jesus says that the man entrusted his wealth to his servants, and probably the word for servants, you know, with polite translations, is probably really slaves. And he didn't entrust a bit of his wealth, he entrusted the lot. He had to. But he entrusts different weights, and of course, uh, you know, older translations will remember this as the parable of the talents, and the Greek word there is talent, and what a talent is not, is not actually a unit of coinage, but a weight. So he shares this out, and he gives five weights worth to one slave, three to another, and, and uh, sorry, two to another, and one to the last. And he does it according to their ability. And I personally find it comforting and challenging in equal measure that when Jesus asks us to use our gifts, he only gives us as much as we can handle. The Bible is um, a book of celebration of all types of God-given talents. Um, our colleague this morning actually reflects that rather pleasingly, seeing God in everything. If you read in the Old Testament about the construction of the, the tabernacle or the building of the temple, think of the stonemasonry, not in the tabernacle, I know they knit about, but not just the, the stonemasonry, the woodwork, the detailed carving, the metalwork in gold and silver and bronze, the embroidery and the other needlework, uh, and when it had been built, the perfumery with the incense and the anointing oils, the music and the instruments, all to the glory of God. And think behind that to the husbandry of the trees, the felling of the trees, the cutting to size and shape of the wood, the shepherding of the flocks that produced the wool, the clipping and the spinning and the dyeing and the weaving and the craftsmanship in the making of the musical instruments, all to the glory of God. Let your imagination loose on the whole of Scripture and it becomes a celebration of our God's ability, his talents. He gives us not just enough to get by, but something to inspire us, to draw our attention to him, to turn the glory back to him. And, of course, the Apostle Paul to whom we'll come in a minute, in greater depth, um, didn't just start out as a lawyer and turn into a tent maker. He also did a bit of preaching and wrote some letters. Eunice and I were walking past Mountain Warehouse in the High Street a few days ago, and I said somewhat sardonically, um, 
isn't um, you know, a mountain warehouse a bit pretentious in the middle of the Perbex. Um, but imagine going into mountain warehouse. Um, other camping shops are available. Imagine going into mountain warehouse and finding you bought a tent that had been made by Paul, perhaps with some of his sermon notes in it. Uh, when it comes to spiritual gifts, I don't want to re-preach Matt's sermon of a couple of weeks ago, but let's recall the list of spiritual gifts Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 12. The word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, <coughs> faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 underlines again that these are gifts all given by the same Spirit of God. They're tools given to us to use for kingdom purposes. But I think we must be aware of the danger of compartmentalizing. One of the, uh, one of the most joy-inducing things I've seen and received is uh, this book, which is the Infographic Bible um, by... Um, Karen Sori, and it's got a forward by Nicky Gumbel, so it must be good. And it's actually what Karen Sori has done is use her talents as a graphic designer and the data culled from the Bible to present the Bible in graphic form. So if you look at the right page, you can see in an instant that this story is only in Matthew's Gospel. And um, I, I commend it to you, and I thank Eunice for um, buying it for me for Christmas, and I thank our daughter Amy for drawing it to our attention. Because that, that book brings together those graphic creative talents and the Word and the Spirit of God. And it really, really, in my view, life-enhancing. But we get the list in 1 Corinthians 12 because of the list of gifts because of 1 Corinthians 3. Because the Corinthians are dividing into factions. They're getting behind their favorite preachers and losing the plot. I love Andy, says one. I follow Matt, says another. I follow James, says another. I follow Rob, says another. I bring it down to earth. Paul reminds the Corinthians, as he reminds us, that there is only one foundation, and no one can lay a new one. That foundation is Jesus. And anything you do, you're building on him. And... Like the third servant in today's story, whatever you build is one day going to be assessed and not all is going to survive. They're ambitious for the cult of personality, not the glory of unity. He reminds them, and the Greek uses the plural you, you are the temple of Christ. He reminds them that God's temple is sacred. He reminds them that God's spirit dwells in them as he does in us at SML. 
the focus is not on anyone other than God and his glory. The problem of the Corinthian church was selfish ambition. The Greek word that's used is, is rivalries or factions, the sort of thing. This is the context of the Greek, of you get at election time. I say no more. The third servant, the one with the one talent who buried it, was also, you know, suffering from selfish ambition too, but of a different sort, the desire to protect himself. He'd got his gift in accordance with his ability, and as his ability showed what he could or couldn't do. He probably suffered from what economists today would call risk aversion. That's our tendency to prefer outcomes with higher degrees of certainty and lower risk, even if it is clear that will produce a lower reward. Our desire to prefer outcomes with higher degrees of certainty and lower risk, even if it's clear that that will produce a lesser reward. When talk, Paul talks about his ambition, his good ambition, he uses a word which in Greek is apparently pretty untranslatable, but it means, it carries the sense of doing the right thing because it's the right thing. And here, these slaves had been given this trust. They were supposed to do the right thing. Two of them did, one of them didn't. <clears throat> and when, what Jesus clearly implies in the story of the bags of gold, and Paul reinforces, is that the right sort of ambition is good. The first two servants did well. They weren't out for themselves. They did what was right, and they shared in the master's joy. I wonder if they got their freedom. Sticking with Paul, but moving to his letters to Timothy, doesn't I wonder if there's a case, a bit of a case study there. Doesn't looking at Paul's letters to Timothy make you wonder if Paul was worried that the gifted, hands-on, prophesied over Timothy is going to end up doing nothing? We certainly get the impression that like the third servant, Timothy may have been timid. It's not just what Paul writes directly to him, for the Spirit of God does not make us timid, but it's also what Paul says to other people. He writes to the Corinthians, Christians in Corinth, and I don't know if you ever spotted this, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is working with you. Now, I don't know whether that's supposed to tell us something about the Corinthians or something about Timothy, but there's certainly a hint that he might be a bit nervous. Scripture gives us this little case study on the importance of recognizing and using gifts in Paul's first letter to Timothy. The desire to be a church leader is a good thing, Paul's, Paul tells Timothy. It's okay to have good, godly ambition. Paul writes, Timothy, my son, 
I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well. And again, don't neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy's been given gifts, spiritual bags of gold, and is being encouraged to use them. And Paul gives him practical advice about how to do it in his second letter. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Preach the word. Be prepared. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. He's not just pointing out the gifts, he's also showing him, telling him what to do. Okay, we're not all called to be church leaders or preachers like Timothy. Simply use him as an example, as a case study. But the lessons, the lessons apply to any gift of any type. Keep on building on what you know. Keep doing what you've been called to do. Stick it out even when the going's tough. If we're to make it our ambition to use our gifts for God's glory, we need to address risk aversion and fear. We need to embed deep within our souls a powerful trust in the fact, as Paul reminds Timothy, that the spirit God gives us is a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. And words that he writes to Timothy that have stuck with me from, since my teenage years, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. Paul doesn't just remind Timothy of his gifts, he tells him to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Just one or two simple questions as I head towards a close. That's a bit of a Pauline head towards a close. Should each of us be doing an audit of our talents? Each gift has been given to us by a generous and good and gracious God according to what he thinks we can do, and he wants us to use those gifts for him to the best of our ability. If they can be used at SML, and I'm conscious this is the first Sunday after we're a staff member down, if they can be used at SML or elsewhere to bring glory to him, he wants them to be used. Do we need to invite the Holy Spirit this morning to breathe his life afresh into those gifts, to fan them into flame, to bring glory to him? Is each of us ambitious for God and not careful for ourselves? I felt 
the Lord say as I was preparing this, I just feel I have to say it, that he wants us to love him more than any position we have or any role that we play. Do we need to forget ourselves and to focus on God? We, we love Pool Park. Do you like Pool Park? Isn't Pool Park lovely? After I'd read this passage for the first time, um, after Andy passed on to me what it was, shortly after that, I got a picture of Pool Park. Over there, particularly if you come in from our end of Pool, there's a pond for the radio-controlled yacht club, and that's what I saw first. You walk past them, you see the men and women having great fun with their yachts. Of course, they themselves never leave dry ground and go onto the water. And the yachts simply go round and round and back and forth, and it's fun, but the yachts take all the risk. A bit further along, past the swans, you find the pedalos and sometimes the paddle boards. With them, you can have an adventure for half an hour or an hour, actually on the water, but all in the safe confines of the boating lake. But it's practice and fun, but it's fairly risk-free. Over the wall, <coughs> there's Pearl Harbor. There are people there who are part of crews that go out on the seas where it's not always safe. And what do those crews do? Some may just take passengers down to Swanage and back, but you know, for some people, like our, one of our daughters who did that trip with us last summer, that might be the best and most life-enhancing thing that's happened for months. And the crew has made it happen. Some are crewing ferries that take people to France or the Channel Islands and help them on their way to all sorts of life adventures. Some are cargo ships. They carry people's burdens. Some are fishing boats that feed people. Some are RNLI volunteers who save lives at sea. The Lord wants us in Pearl Harbor, not in the park. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you, and may the glory be.